Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Harvest. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us today. Uh, for all of our Harvest family, it's great to have you worshiping with us as always. And if you're a guest with us today, so glad that you have found your way to us, whether that be through our online uh, channels or through a friend inviting you. Um, so we just want to continue now to worship together by studying God's word. So let's grab our Bibles. We're going to go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, looking at how Jesus is bigger than everything else in this life. Bigger than all the, the problems that come against us, bigger than all the things that we run after, bigger than all the things that we think are so important. Jesus is the biggest. He's the most important. He's the one that we want to really uh, know and find in this life. And so today, we're going to look at how Jesus is bigger than my religion. Which, some of you, as soon as I say that word religion, you might tune out on me, and please don't do that. Give me at least a couple minutes here to explain to you why you need this message and how all of us are tied into the idea of religion, and we need to check that against our view of Jesus collectively. So let me see if I can get you there in the next few minutes. So the last couple of weeks, um, uh, ESPN has finally released something that I have been uber excited about and anticipating for a long time. And that is the 10-part documentary of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls called The Last Dance. Um, and this, this documentary, just, just for fair warning, is a pastoral warning to you. There is some pretty uh, strong language in it that might be offensive to some. But, um, but in, if you can get past that, the documentary is a great um, film and, and a great look at this record-setting dynasty of the Bulls in the 90s and what all that meant. But interestingly enough, as I've watched this documentary a couple times now, what I've noticed more than anything throughout the whole thing is actually worship. <laughs> That's what keeps coming to my mind as I'm watching this. It shows how much of an icon MJ really was, both then and now, all across the world. People wanted to know him. They wanted to, they wanted to be like him. They, wanted, they, were just, they just wanted to be part of the MJ movement. They were so enamored with him, right? People would flock to him everywhere he went. Literally, they would worship him. And as I've watched this film, it takes me back to my own childhood, because I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. And it takes me back to how much I literally worshipped and loved Michael, right? The, the games and the cards and the posters and the clothes and the jerseys and the shoes. I mean, the shoes, right? Um, just to just kind of be really honest with you um, and kind of tell you how bad it got at one stage of my life. Um, so my name is Micah James Mathis. Uh, middle initial is J, and there for a season I was so obsessed with Michael Jordan that I would tell people that that J uh, stood for Jordan, that my name was actually Micah Jordan Mathis, um, and that was, that was kind of how much I idolized Michael. And if you notice that word there, idolized, um, we use that word when we think highly of someone, when we look up to them as a role model or a hero, but in the Bible, it uses the word idol in terms of worship. An idol is something that you worship with your life. And I think what all of this reveals to us, and the Bible tells us, and if you just look at your own life, is that everyone worships. Right? Every single human being was built with this desire in us to worship something or someone. And that drives us to, to run after things and to give our time and our attention and our money and our affection to something, to someone, to worship them with that. And whatever you give your time and money attention to, that is what you worship. In fact, I would uh, wager to guess that during this time of quarantine, when so many things have been taken away from us, 
that maybe it's exposed to us some of the things that we worship? Are there some things in your life that you were so invested in that once they went away, it really hurt? That you were really grieving? That your heart was, was hurting because you didn't have that thing in your life anymore? It's probably because at some level you're worshiping that. And so if we're going to talk about worship, then we also have to talk about religion, right? And again, a lot of people have an idea in their head of what religion means, but I don't think we always have the full meaning of what religion is. And so let me give you some definitions here and see if we can maybe hone in on this a little bit deeper. So the first definition you'll find in the dictionary on religion is this. The belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God or God's. That's the most common understanding of religion, right? That, that you're worshiping God or some type of um, God in your life. But the second definition says a particular system of faith and worship. So now we're going a little bit broader, right? It's not just like worship of God, but worship of anything. Any, or any type of faith would qualify as religion underneath that definition. But then there's a third definition that says a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. Now we're getting to it, right? Whatever it is in your life that you ascribe supreme importance to, that is essentially your religion. That's what you worship. That's what you build your life around. You see, everyone has a religion. Everyone ascribes supreme importance to something or someone. The real question is, not do you have a religion, but what is your religion? And is it leading you to the right end in your life? Is it leading you to the end that you want? Is it leading you to the end that you need? And what we're going to learn today is that any religion that is not founded on God's word will not lead you to God. In fact, it will most likely lead you away from God in many ways. So what we're going to see in the passage today is this. The scriptures are my only path to God not one of the paths to God. The scriptures are my only path to get to God. It's not like there's many options to choose from. There's one, and that's what we need to build our worship, our religion on. So with that in mind, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 1, and let's see how this story uh, teaches that today. Now, when they had passed through Amphalus and Apollo. Polonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So the first thing we see about religion in this passage is that when I reject the scriptures, my religion is bigger than Jesus. When I reject God's word, when I reject the scriptures, I'm saying that my religion is bigger, it's more important, it's more pressing than Jesus himself. Here, Paul ends up going to Thessalonica now. So he, he leaves Philippi, he travels on further on his journey, he comes to the city of Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia, it's the biggest city around. It was, a, it was a harbor town, it was right on the water, 
So it was a giant commercial hub, lots of trading going on, and it was very loyal to Rome and to Caesar, as we're going to see later on in the passage. And this city, Thessalonica, is the city that later on Paul is going to write back to the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. He's going to write back to the church that he's going to start here in Thessalonica. Then we have those letters as part of our New Testament. When he gets to Thessalonica, this time he finds a synagogue. Philippi didn't have a synagogue, but Thessalonica does, which tells us there's a presence of Jews there. Right? And one thing that we know about the Jewish people is, number one, they already believed in God, and they believed in the Scriptures, the Old Testament as we think about it today. So they already had that common ground, and they were eagerly awaiting the Messiah. They were waiting for the Christ to come to them. And so Paul takes that as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And it says that as was his custom, he started with the Jews, and he went to the synagogue for three Sabbaths. So three weeks in a row on Sabbath he goes, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul starts right where they're at, right? We already have a common ground. We already both believe in the scriptures, so let's start there. And he reasoned from the scriptures to show them that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from death. Now, this would have been shocking to the Jews. This would have been the very opposite of their messianic expectations. They thought the Messiah was going to come in and rule and reign and defeat Rome and be this big military conqueror. They did not think about him as somebody who was going to suffer and die and then rise again. But Paul shows it to them in the scriptures. And he says, this same Messiah that's going to, to, to die and to rise is the, Jesus, the Christ that I proclaim to you. Right? He's like, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. And when he says that he proclaimed Christ to them, literally what that means is he would have proclaimed the, the, the life and the work of Jesus Christ to them. He would have given them the gospel, the good news about Jesus. That although we are stuck in our sin and we are destined for hell and we need salvation, God sent his son Jesus to be that. And Jesus came and he was born as a human. He lived a perfect and sinless life, something that you and I could never do. And then he went to the cross and he died a sinner's death. He died in our place for our sin. He took our punishment upon himself and he gave his life for us. He offered himself as a substitute to God to pay for our sin. And then he died, and he went into the tomb, and three days later, he rose back to life. He resurrected as God, as the one who came to bring us new life, just like he had new life. And then he ascended into heaven, and he is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all creation until the day that he returns to earth to gather his church and gather his family and take them into eternity with him. This is the gospel. This is the Christ that, that Paul proclaimed to them from their own scriptures. And when they saw it, when they saw the truth about the Messiah and Jesus, it says that some Jews were persuaded, as well as some Greeks and some leading women. There were lots of converts. Why? Not because of what Paul said, but because of what the scriptures said. They saw it in the scriptures for themselves, and they believed. But it says that this made the Jews jealous, specifically the Jewish leaders. They did not like this because they were losing people, right? They were converting from Judaism to Christianity, which means they were losing people, they were losing numbers, they were losing attention, they were losing control, they were probably losing money. So they were jealous of Paul. They were jealous of what was happening with the, with the church there in Thessalonica. 
And what's interesting to me about their jealousy is that they weren't really angry about Paul's teaching. They weren't angry about some heresy or false gospel. They weren't, they weren't angry about Jesus. They were just angry that they were losing people, right? They, they rejected the truth of God. They rejected the fulfillment of the scriptures and the Messiah because of their own pride and selfish ambition, because of what they wanted for themselves. And so they were so jealous, they went and they took some wicked men from the marketplace and they formed a mob and they started a riot in the town and they went after Jason. So they went to Jason's house, who evidently was the host of Paul and Silas and this Christian movement. What's striking to me is that these are supposed to be the religious leaders. These are supposed to be the the Jewish leaders of their town. And they are so angry, they are so jealous that they are willing to go and sin against the Lord and against the scriptures in order to protect their religion. Because that was their true love. They didn't love the Lord. They didn't love the scriptures. They loved their religion and how they functioned and what they thought about that. They believed in their religion more than God's word. They believed more in the way they did church than what God had to say about it. They had replaced the authority of the scriptures with the authority of their religious system. And this was a problem. And so they rejected God's scriptures. You know what Luke here calls scriptures today, uh, we call it the Bible, right? The Holy Bible, which is a collection of 66 books, which are actually different types of writings and letters that have been collected that were written multiple times throughout history by different men, but all written by God through divine inspiration of these human authors. And that's what we think about today as the Holy Bible. But what's really interesting to me is how our culture, our world today, uses the term Bible. How, do they, how does our culture understand the term and the idea of Bible? Um, I remember when we were pregnant with Eliana, our first daughter, um, somebody came up to uh, Courtney and she was saying, listen, you, you know, you, you've got to get this book. Um, it's called when to, What to Expect When You're Expecting, right? And it's just, it's just like, it's like the best book on pregnancy. It'll tell you everything you need to know. They said, it's, they said, it's like the pregnancy Bible. <laughs> That's the way they described it, right? That this was, this was the best and most important book you could get on pregnancy. It was the pregnancy Bible, they said. Or think about like whenever maybe you would go to a new job. And, you know, you have to go through all that training at the beginning. And you go into the room and you meet with the HR person and they take you through all the stuff. And they come up to you and they hand you the company manual, right, the, the company handbook. And they say, listen, you need to read this. You need to memorize it because at this company, this is your Bible, right? That's, what, that's how they phrase it. In fact, you can go on Amazon and find a ton of different books that have all the different, these different titles. That, and they're mainly how-to books that are ex- claiming to be the, the authority on their area of expertise on, and how to be successful. Uh, I found a couple for you. Here's the first one uh, is called the, um, the marketing, uh, or what's it called? It's called the, uh, the, the book marketing Bible. There it is. And um, so if you're writing a book and you need to know how to market that thing, this is your, this is your go-to manual evidently. The second one I found was called the new comedy Bible. So anybody who's looking to start and stand up, maybe do a change of career, this is the book you need, right? Or uh, maybe the best one, the Dangerman's Paintball Bible. Because, you know, paintball is, like, hard enough to figure out that you need a manual for that, right? That's, it's a complicated enough thing that you need something to help you. 
What's interesting to me about all these different things is that obviously none of these books are about God, nor are they from God. And so why are they called a Bible? Like, why are they using that term? What's the common thread through all of these things that they're going to use that term, Bible, to describe themselves? It's because Bible has become synonymous with authority. All of these books are claiming to be the top and final authority in their field. They're claiming to be, to paintball, what the Bible is to faith in God. So you see, the issue becomes very, very clear. The Bible claims final and total authority on all things relating to faith in God. This Bible claims final and total authority on all things related to God and faith. And of course it is. Like, if God wrote a book, of course it is the ultimate authority on all things, hands down. And so if my religion rejects the Bible, then essentially I reject God. I reject Jesus. I reject the gospel because I'm saying that this book isn't right. You see, it all comes back to the authority of God's scriptures. So the question is, will you reject it or will you accept it? Will you reject or accept this book as the authority over your life, over your faith, over your religion? And if you choose to reject it then completely, then you can't follow Jesus. You just can't if you reject God's scriptures. But if you are following Jesus, if you already are a follower of Christ, and you're still picking and choosing what parts of the Bible you're going to believe, which parts of the Bible you're going to receive or reject, then you're still not embracing the authority of God in your life. You're still rejecting his authority, because with the Bible, it's all or none. That's not something we get to pick and choose on. The scriptures have to be the foundation of what we think about when we think about worship in God and religion. I cannot be good with God if I reject the authority of his scriptures in my life. It's just not possible. Because he said, this is how it's done. And so we have to come to the scriptures. So that's one approach to religion, is to reject the scriptures. Here's a second approach. Look at verse 6. It says, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So the second thing we see here is that when I ignore the scriptures, my religion is bigger than Jesus. Sometimes people don't reject the scriptures. They just completely ignore the scriptures. Like, we're not even going to even give them a, a chance. We're not even going to look at them to decide whether or not we want to accept or reject them. And so in this part of the passage, what we see is that they, the mob goes to Jason's house. They can't find Paul and Silas. So instead, they grab Jason and some of the other guys, and they drag them in front of the authorities because they're guilty by association. And they get them in front of the city authorities. Remember, these city authorities, they're not Jewish. They're Roman, Right? They, these guys are, are Romans, and so they could care less about God's scriptures. They don't care about the Old Testament or the scriptures at all like the Jews do. But they, they bring them before these guys, and they give them these charges. They say, first of all, Paul and Silas, that they have turned the world upside down. 
which is basically accusing them of disturbing the peace, right? That they're causing this radical social upheaval, that they're causing this big problem. And the issue is that that is rising up against the first Roman idol, which is peace. Rome's philosophy was go in, conquer the people, subject them to Rome, and then everybody has to live in peace. You have to coexist, you have to get along, don't rock the boat, don't challenge authority, just be at peace with one another. And anybody who was trying to challenge that was going to be in big trouble because that was one of the things they worshipped, was peace. But then the second accusation is that they were acting against Caesar, which is basically accusing them of rebellion against the king, like high treason. And just the suggestion of that in this day and age could have led to your death, whether you were guilty or not. Because it's pushing up against the second Roman idol. The second thing that they worshipped was Caesar. He was treated not just like a king, but like a god. He had ultimate authority, and everyone bowed down to him. And so both these accusations are, are bringing to light the Roman idols, the Roman religion, what they worshipped, and how Paul and Silas and the gospel were challenging that. And so it says the authorities were disturbed because these guys are now a threat to their way of life. And so they tell Jason, you can't have these guys at your house anymore, and they take money as security, basically a guarantee from Jason saying that I won't let these guys stay at my house anymore, and I'll make sure that they don't come back into the city. So their solution was, listen, shut it down. Right? Like, we're not listening to this. We're not listening to reasoning or investigation. We don't care about any of that. If this is at all a threat to who we are and what we believe, then just shut it down. Ignore the claims. No assessment, no evaluation. Just stop it. Stop the threat no matter what because it challenges my religion. That's what it means to ignore the scriptures. So, Something that I, I kind of find ironic in my life um, is that um, as much as I hate running today as an adult, um, I actually chose to do it in high school. I actually chose to go out for the track team. Uh, it was mainly to stay in shape during the spring so I could be ready for basketball. But nonetheless, I did. I ran, and I ran track. I did long jump and triple jump and pole vaulting and the 400 meter and the 400 meter relay. And, and it was brutal. Um, but I remember when I first decided to go out for track, all my friends, all the, all the people at school, they started telling me and warning me about this one coach. They were like, listen, this guy, man, he is a hothead. He is a jerk. He's callous. He's overbearing. Like, he just wants to make everybody miserable. Like, stay clear of this guy. He is bad news. So when I went to that first practice, man, I, I, was, I was like already on guard. I, 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 knew, the, I knew about this guy. I, I had his number. I knew what he was all about. And so I wanted nothing to do with him, just stay clear of him for sure. But I went to the first practice and it was okay. And then the first week went by and it was, wasn't so bad. And then we had a good month and then we had a good season. And what I came to realize was that actually as I got to know this person personally, I actually liked him. I actually liked his hard driving, no quit, give it all you got kind of attitude. I liked that he pushed us to be the best. And I noticed that the only people that he had a problem with were the people who were loafing or whining or lazy. So others had taken and twisted his personality to fit their own negative narrative because they didn't like the way he interacted with them. But once I got to know him personally, I realized that's all, it was all out of context. Most people in our world have the same exact issue with God. Their view of God is completely contingent on what other people have told them, usually negative things. 
And so they decided, I don't want anything to do with God because obviously he's, you know, this big, massive dictator that, I, that just wants to ruin my life. And, and so they've listened to all these negative things, and that's, that's their whole view of God. And they've never actually got to know him personally. They've never investigated and, and given him a chance. They've, they've never drawn their own assessment about who God is because they've chosen to ignore the only path that there is to truly know God, and that's the scriptures. If you want to really know who God is, don't listen to somebody else. Read it for yourself because the scriptures are God's self-revelation to us. This book is God telling us who he is and who we are and why we need him. And until you read it, you can't really know God. You can't know the truth about him if you ignore his book and just keep walking through life on everybody else's opinions. The only way you find God is through the scriptures. So read them, right? Don't ignore them. Because I can never know the truth about God if I ignore his self-revelation in the scriptures. It's just the way it goes. So if your religion is built on rejecting the scriptures or ignoring the scriptures, if your belief system, if your worship, if your life is built around either one of those, you are not actually giving God a fair shake. Because you don't even know who he is. Or if you do, you've chosen that something else over him. But there's a third option. Look at verse 10 for the rest of the story. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So here we see the third option, and that's when I believe the scriptures, Jesus is bigger than my religion. When I actually believe and embrace God's holy scriptures, I come to learn and see that Jesus is so much bigger than any other religious system I can come up with. And so here again, Paul and Silas are sent to Berea. So they they get run out of Thessalonica, they go to the next city, and they find another synagogue. So here we go again, going back to the Jews. But this time it says the Jews were more noble than their predecessors. These Jews in Berea, they were open-minded, they were fair, they were thoughtful, they, they had integrity with how they approached it. And so it says they received the word with eagerness. Right? They, they had a greater receptivity to the scriptures. They wanted to know the truth. So they were eager to hear it and receive it. And so they, they heard from Paul, and then it says they examined the scriptures. I think this is great. The word there, examined, in the uh, Greek it means to, to do like a judicial investigation, like in a court of law, to investigate it with, with integrity and without bias and to come to a real conclusion after a thorough investigation. And they didn't just do this weekly, like in Thessalonica. They did it daily because they were hungry for God. And they wanted to see if these things were so. They were willing to give it time and attention to give critical thought, to give critical examination. They weren't believing this just because Paul said so. They were looking at the scriptures themselves. This is what every follower of Jesus should do. This should be us, church, right? We should come to God's word, 
open and eager and thoughtful to discern what the Lord says. Do not believe anything because the pastor says so. Don't believe it because your small group leader says so or because you read it in that book by your favorite Christian author or because you heard it at that conference from that Christian speaker or your grandparents or your parents. Don't believe it until you read it, until you see it, until you study it and you see that God's word says so. That's when we know it's true. The scriptures are our ultimate authority. But first you have to study them. You have to know it, right? You have to be a Berean. Do you know that that word Berean has become synonymous with people who study the scripture carefully and thoughtfully? Right? That's who we need to be, Harvest. That's who we need to be Bereans. Approaching God's word and studying and getting to know him with all diligence and examination. And because they did that, it says many believed. Jews and Greeks. Because they saw it for themselves in the scripture. Every Sunday, that's what we try to do. We try to get you to open your Bible and look at it for yourself so you can see it. Because when you see it and you see that God said it, not just some man, it changes everything. That's the authority. But then the Jews from Thessalonica show up and they start stirring up the crowds again because they don't see it. They're not willing to look, or if they did look, they are not willing to receive God's word as an authority in their life. They're willing to just go off of what men say and what religion that they've built rather than what God says. And so they miss it. Which really is the main question. What will you believe? Who will you believe? God or man? You can't responsibly answer that question until you read and study the scriptures. You can't call yourself a thoughtful, critical thinker. You can't call yourself an an educated, intelligent person on faith and religion until you have actually taken the time to study and understand what the Bible says. You at least have to give it an unbiased study and then decide for yourself if Jesus is really God. I challenge you to do that. But be careful when you do, because I guarantee you when you read this book for real, it will change your life. I challenge people all the time to read the scriptures for themselves and to see. And a lot of times I get pushed back because people say, well, the Bible, it's, it's not really, it's not legitimate. It's not, it's all made up. It's all made, it comes from, they have all these excuses about why the Bible is not a reliable document. And so I want to just address some of those excuses today real briefly to help you process that. And maybe so you can help somebody else process that and maybe get past some of these excuses so they can give the Bible a fair chance and actually read it. So the first, question, the first excuse I hear a lot is, well, how do we know that the Bible that we have today is the same as the original documents? How do we know that this is the valid, actual, authentic Bible that was written all those years ago? And that's a good question. But if we look at the authenticity of the ancient manuscripts of the Bible versus other readings, we'll see that the Bible is actually much more reliable than anything else. Let me give you some examples. So Homer's Iliad, famous writing famous um, author, and, and it's read throughout literature and, and so forth. It was written in 800 B.C., 800 years before Christ. And if you go back, the earliest manuscript we have, the oldest manuscript we have, is actually a copy from 400 years after the original date of the writing. So there was 400-year gap between the original writing and the oldest copy that we have. That's a lot of time to make errors in the copying. 
And there's only 643 copies of Homer's Iliad in those original manuscripts. Okay? Second example, Plato, famous philosopher, studied in every philosophy class. Nobody questions whether Plato's writings are authentic. They take him for sure this is what Plato said, and they study it like so. His writings were written around 400 B.C., and the oldest manuscripts that we have for Plato's writings were actually copied 1,200 years after his original writing. So there's a 1,200-year gap between when Plato wrote the originals and the, cop, the oldest copy that we have. That's a long time for things to get changed and mistaken. And there are only seven original manuscripts that we have for Plato's writings. And yet nobody questions whether or not they're authentic. Now, compare that to the New Testament. The New Testament was written around A.D. 50 to 100 in that span, right? which is newer than both of these documents. And the oldest manuscripts we have for the New Testament were copied only 50 years after the original writings. That 50 years sounds like a long time, but not compared to 400 or 1,200. So it's much closer in time period. And we have 5,600 plus copies of the original manuscripts of the New Testament that we can compare to one another and show that these are the authentic original writings of the Bible. So if we're going to throw out the Bible because we can't prove its authenticity, then we have to throw out pretty much every other ancient document from that time period because it is more well-attested than anything else. Second excuse I oftentimes hear, okay, fine, but, but the Bible isn't really historical, right? It's, not, it's never been historically proven. It's not historically accurate. We, we can't confirm what it says. Actually, we can. <laughs> the Bible has been subjected to extremely vigorous literary and historical criticism for decades, centuries even, right? There's probably been more work and more criticism on the Bible than any other ancient work, and it's still come out unscathed. In fact, the Bible's claims and the Bible's accounts have been proven repeatedly through archaeology and through other contemporary writers of that day and time period. I'll give you a couple quick examples. So Acts 17 that we just studied today, in verses 6 through 8, Luke uses a word in the Greek, politarchs, to describe the city magistrates. And for a long time, in all other Greek writings, we could not find that word anywhere. Politarchs was not a word we found in any other Greek documents or classical writings. And so people assumed, well, he made a mistake. He just made that up, or that's, that's a false title. It's not real. Until they were doing some archaeological digs in Thessalonica, and they found an archway that had the same term, and it was referring to government officials, confirming that Luke was right all along. In the next chapter of Acts 18, that we're going to study here in a week or two, same thing. He used the Luke uses the title of proconsul to describe this name Galileo, right? And again, couldn't find that word anywhere in any Greek writings until they did an archaeological dig at the site, and they found an inscription with the same title and Galileo's name tagged to it, just like Luke had said. Another example. John 5, 1 and 2, talks about the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem, that it had this magical pool, or this, this, this healing pool that had five porticos, right? And no one could prove it ever existed. No one could ever find it until they did. <laughs> in the 1930s, an archaeological dig found exactly it as it was described there in Jerusalem. Throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, and, and even in some non-Christian writings like the historian Josephus, they talk about Jesus having a brother named James who was eventually killed for the faith in AD 62. Again, how do we prove that this guy ever even existed? 
How do we prove that he was part of this movement? Well, in 2002, archaeologists found a first century bone box dated to about A.D. 63 with this inscription, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. So over and over again, archaeology and history points to the fact that the Bible is true and accurate. You can, there's tons more examples of that. You can go Google it and find them for yourself. So the Bible is authentic. It is true and accurate. And then the third thing I oftentimes hear is that, well, fine, it was written, but men wrote it for their own agenda. Right? That they, they changed the language. They wrote it for their own purposes and so forth. Well, think about this for a second with me. Even the most critical scholars, right, the ones who don't even believe the Bible, but they study the Bible, they still say that they're 99% certain that the modern biblical text is accurate and original, and that the only mistakes that they might have found in the manuscripts were either spelling mistakes or marking mistakes, that it didn't change any major doctrines or teachings. And yet, the writers of the New Testament books, if they were going to manipulate that for their own benefit, don't you think they would have wrote it in a way that cast themselves in a slightly better light? Because <laughs> if you read the Bible, it makes Christian leaders and the church and humans in general look really messed up sometimes. It shows all their deficiencies. It shows all their depravity. It shows all their mistakes. They didn't hide any of that because it's what really happened. And it shows us that we need Jesus. Let me say it this way. In other words, if men were going to make up a religion, they would not make up the Christianity that we find in the Bible. <laughs> if men made up their own religion, it would not be about repentance and humility and sacrifice because that's not what we run to naturally as humans. Christianity of the Bible is not something that men would manipulate for their own benefit. But you'd know that if you read it and really understood what it ascribes to. So anyone who takes the time to truly read and study the Bible cannot possibly conclude that it's illegitimate, even if they choose to reject its teachings. The question is not, is the Bible true? But will I believe in the God of the Bible? It's not, did Jesus really exist? But will I believe in him as God and Savior? That's the question we have to answer. Because I can only truly get to God when I read and believe his scriptures. That's the only way, guys. There's not many paths. There's one path. It comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the scriptures of God. A relationship with God only comes through the authority of his holy word. So now the ball's in your court. What will you do with the scriptures? Now that you know, what will you do with this? Are you going to reject them? Are you going to ignore them? Or are you going to read and study and believe in them and believe in the Jesus that they proclaim so he can save you and give you a life in eternity with the Lord? The scriptures are my only path to God. Not one of many paths. One path. Read it. Find that path for yourself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now. We thank you, God so much for this time together this morning to worship you, to study your word, to hear from your scriptures, Lord, to have our eyes open to the truth of who you are. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your scriptures, for revealing to us you yourself and, and your nature and calling us into relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for leading us to love and trust you for salvation. Lord, help us right now to read and study your word. Help us be Bereans, Lord, 
both for salvation and for sanctification as we follow you each and every day. Lord, we trust you. We trust your word. We submit to it as authority in our lives. Thank you, God. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.